Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. For this episode, we have Head of Product, Nikki Eggers, talking to Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, and Rob Smith, Head of Behavioural Finance, about the UK's record-breaking plunge in output, the outlook for vaccines and treatments after Russia's announcement, and whether the pick for vice president in the US really matters on the campaign trail. Hello, welcome to this week's Word on the Street. I'm delighted to welcome back one of our most cool, calm and collected contributors, um, which is Rob Smith, uh, always on hand to help us to make better decisions to keep our our head straight, um, or at least less bad decisions, thanks to his his knowledge and uh, sharing of his behavioural science expertise. We also have Will, as usual, to try and decipher what's going on in the world at the moment and what that means for those of us trying to grow our savings and investments. So first things first, Will, uh, we've had Kamala Harris announced as Joe Biden's running mate, which manages, I guess, deliberately several important firsts. Um, We've had the announcement this week of the Russian vaccine, Um, clearly a less positive record-breaking contraction in the UK economy and and lots more in the way of trade tensions. So plenty to talk about, Um, but let's start off with vaccines because many of our listeners will be wondering what what this could mean. Um, So most experts are telling us not to expect anything until the next year in reality as far as usable um, vaccines. But can you can you give us a bit of an update on where you think things are at? Yeah. Uh, hi, Nikki. Hi, hi, Rob. Happy Friday to you, uh, to you both. Um, yes, there have certainly been some raised eyebrows in the global health uh, healthcare community. Um, it, it's actually a similar sort of type of vaccine to Oxford's effort, which you know you all uh, may have read about as it goes, uh, more on that in a second. But the reality is that we, we don't actually have that much detail on the Russian uh, vaccine. Um, the results of two studies have been posted, as far as I've seen, um, involving uh, 38 volunteers each. Um, the outcomes obviously uh, seem to have been uh, encouraging. But phase three uh, clinical trials where uh, the vaccine is tested on a much larger population, uh, well, they began only this week. Um, uh, and remember, um, phase three uh, trials or comparable phase three trials, roughly comparable phase three trials, I should say, um, have already begun on a number of other um, uh, vaccine candidates um, around the world. I think there's eight uh, in the running at the moment. Um, uh, perhaps most interestingly, from our perspective in the UK, is the Oxford um, vaccine uh, in partnership with AstraZeneca, which um, which began its phase three um, testing. Um, back in um, May, we could have results here within, uh, you know, within the next couple of months. Um, all, all being, all being well. Time. I mean, there are, like I say, the currently eight vaccines uh, around the world in, in the final. Uh, phase three of large-scale effectiveness tests, which is amazing, really, if you think about it, because, you know, for context, uh, when I was reading this only this morning, um, it took um, hepatitis B, uh, the disease with the largest number of attempts, um, decades uh, to reach the same number of developments that COVID-19 has sparked really in a few quarters. Um, in terms of timelines, um, we obviously want to be wary, uh, you know, of, of sort of hard um, forecasts here. Um Sometimes, you know, when we look to sort of what the professional forecasting community has done, some one shorthand sometimes is to look at what the Good Judgment Project 
um, are doing. You can look it up on uh, internet. It's freely available. Uh, it's a very interesting uh, project. We've talked about this. And Rob has talked about this before. These are, uh, you know, like I say, shorthand for sort of professional super forecasters. Now they now envisage a 47% probability to the deployment of a vaccine before March 2021, um, and they see an 83% probability um, of uh, that happening before September 2021. Now that um, forecast. Um, it is is sort of roughly representative of what um, you know you are seeing the forecasting community um, talk about at the moment, and actually, interestingly, um, those expectations have grown substantially um, over the last month, uh, in particular. Now, as you know, Nikki, you know I'm cutting loads of corners here. There is a huge amount to say on this you know, very complicated subject, uh, and I'm probably not the person to say it in all truth. But the sort of, you know, the whens and wheres and ifs um, of vaccine approval are going to have a huge bearing uh, on the outlook for the economy um, and uh, and therefore capital markets, obviously. Yeah. And, and of course, um, because that 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 really is the enabler for for life returning to, to some kind of normal at, at some point. And obviously, there's been a lot around progress towards better treatments and, and testing as well. So so what are you hearing from, you know, the expert areas on that? Yeah, I mean, I think this is another example, or I would point it as another example of, of why we're better off living today than 20 or 10, 20, 50, 100 years ago. Uh, many people will say music accepted. Um, <laughs> but... A couple of interesting ways, you know, that, but, yeah. um, but the, um, the, um, we could all live in an era without One Direction, where One Direction never existed, maybe. But the, the, uh, <laughs> really, is that... Okay, let's, <laughs> let's move on, Will. Let's move on quickly. There's that blasphemy. Yeah, I'm not having uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say it for myself. Uh, but, I mean, a couple of interesting treatments potentially coming. Um, one is um, the inhaled version of something called um, interferon beta, um, developed by a small um, UK biotech. Um, and the trial started back in March, and they showed um, a, a, a really quite impressive uh, degree at, of efficacy at stopping the virus in its tracks. That was quite a small study. We should get more data on that in the next couple of weeks. One other quite interesting um, uh, a, a sort of candidate is the... Um, or area is the creation of um, novel antibodies, antibodies created in the lab that target the virus specifically. Um, Production-wise, if you think about it, it's much easier to scale than the um, the same-ish strategy, which is using kind of um, uh, using blood plasma from convalescent patients. Now, the point about these, as well as the treatments already in use, so dexamethasone, you know, the, the steroid that um, we saw a lot of, remdesivir, um, is that if you can blunt fatality towards closer to kind of, uh, to make it sort of close, make, make this, this virus closer to kind of seasonal flu levels, it's obviously great news first and foremost because you lose less people. But from the perspective of the economy, you start to see the risk calculation of people change um, with regards to certain activities. Um, you know, more of your economy can, can revive um, uh, that is even without a vaccine. On the testing side, I know Rob has done a lot of reading on this recently, but um, I believe there is now an antigen test, basically a nasal swab with a 15-minute turnaround. Um, now, that that's I think we're seeing that in Florida at the moment, um, but this has got to be something that the world has got to be better at um, for, the next, uh, for the next pandemic. So it's good that we're sort of making advances on this front. So, Rob, this is going to be a good point to bring you in on. Um, you put out a, a, an article recently on LinkedIn. Um, I think, Will, as usual, you might have been muscling in on, on getting a bit of credit there. But you were, you were covering in that article um, how easy it is to misinterpret test data. 
Yes, thanks, Nikki. So I think it's really important to understand how to, as you say, how to inter interpret test results uh, sort of properly. I think both from a policy point of view, which obviously government will be and uh, other, other bodies will be trying to do, but also from an individual level. So it's often easy to assume that, you know, if you went and got a test, uh, which I'm sure many people have a coronavirus test, uh, that if you, um, you know, if you test positive, then you have the, the coronavirus. But is, you know, is this correct? And, and the answer is yes and no, but we have to think about this a bit more deeply. So most people m might know, they might have read about the testing and the fact that they're obviously not 100% accurate as no test ever is. Um, and, and at the moment, consensus is that the sort of false positive rate, so the, the amount of times you get wrongly told that you, you are infected with the virus is about 5%. Um, and the false negative rate, so the times you wrongly get told you don't have coronavirus, um, is anywhere between 2 and sort of 30%. And that depends on exactly how the type of test, where the sample's taken from. But the consensus is at the moment that, you know, for the sort of tests that we're doing, the sort of throat and, and nasal swabs, um, that it's around sort of 30, 30%. So it's easy on that, on that information to, to think that if you have a positive test, it's very likely that you have the virus as that that positive, uh, that false positive rate is quite low. And now you're going to tell us that's not the case. Well, the the answer that's that, that's giving you is just slightly different from the question that you want to want to answer at hand. So, you know what what that percentage of, of accuracy is telling you is is you know how accurate a test is, given that you are infected or given that you aren't infected. Um, whereas you know the question you're really trying to answer is what's the probability of of, of being infected given a positive test. And I think here's the, the little nuance, if you like, something that's really important in driving that probability that tends to be overlooked um, in the first place is, is what we um, call a sort of a prior probability. So that means how likely it is you are to be infected, you know, in the first place before you take that, that test. So, you know, the example is, you know, if you only got a very low rate of, of chance of being infected. So let's say you don't really have many symptoms or any symptoms, and you're in an area that maybe doesn't have a reported outbreak, uh, then the probability of you of you actually having the, the virus in the first place before taking a test is very low. So if we just assume for, 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 sake, for, for argument's sake, that we say it's about a 1% chance of being infected, then you know even if you get a positive test, there'd only be about a 16% probability of, of you actually being infected if that's true. And the reverse also applies. So if you're, if you're much more likely to be infective, infected because of other reasons, then a negative test isn't necessarily worth much. Now, the, the real problem is like, you know, what is your, your probability of being infected before a test? And, and that's where the asymptomatic nature of this virus is, it makes it very difficult because it's very hard because we don't, symptoms don't automatically, or no symptoms don't automatically mean that that, that that percentage kind of drops down. And that's what's really important for considering, I guess, for individual behavior, as well as, you know, government policy and things on, on how to test and how to react to that. And I, and I guess that sort of propensity that we all have to sort of want to believe the result of tests probably, you know, um, skews our, 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 um, our belief in the outcome of it. Um, so although, although obviously the example of the test results is, is most pertinent um, at this point in time, do you apply this more broadly when you're considering um, probabilities and outcomes of testing? 
Yeah, so I mean, this this can apply in many different situations where we kind of fail to accurately take account of this, what I call the prior probability, which is also known as the base rates for something occurring. Um, so just to, I guess, bring it to life a little bit, to try and, uh, a good example here was, was um, one that was done uh, in, a, in a study where people were given the following problem. So they were told a taxi was involved in a hit and run accident at night and that there were two can taxi companies operating in, in, in the city that, that the incident happened in, the green and, and the blue taxi company, just to make it nice and easy. Um, and 85% of the taxis uh, in the city are green and 15% are blue. Now there's a witness who identified seeing the taxi that hit the, hit the man and, and, and they identified it as being blue. Now the court has reliably tested the witness under the same conditions that existed on the night of the accident. And they conclude that the witness correctly identified um, each one of the, um, or each of the two colours of, of, of taxis, 80% of the time. And so the other 20% of the time, they got the colour wrong. So then they ask, you know, what is the probability that the, the, the taxi that actually hit the person was blue rather than green, knowing, knowing the information we have about the witness? Now, what they find is that most people give very high probabilities, way over 50%, some as much as 80% or over, because they're sort of swayed by that accuracy figure of the individual witness. Whereas the reality is that the just the large amount of of, um, of blue taxis that operate is eighty five percent sort of swamps the answer if you like so the, the real answer is is less than fifty percent it's down to forty one percent because of the fact that that it's just so much more likely to be a blue cab in the first place that 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 accuracy of the of the eyewitness is 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 much less important than you would potentially place place weight on yeah and so will I sense Rob has given you a bit of an invitation to talk about historical context here which um could lead us down a very long path but uh a long and boring path your... no 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 so it's always intriguing so come on um hit us with it um, well, <laughs> what have you got oh just yeah i'll let you guys go to sleep so i'll wake you up in 15 minutes and we'll be ready again but no 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 so i mean i, I would just say really um with that, I just think, in a way, this is um, not vindication for my boring historical rants, but I do think that um, you know, when investing and when thinking about the economy, when thinking about you know all current affairs, we're all trying to analyze both what's happening now and what's going to happen in the near future, um, and guessing what's happening in the near future. You know, historical context and perspective. Um, can provide, you know, both really important, but they're not, um, you know, not in the kind of here is your precise playbook um, from when this happened before kind of way. A careful study of history really informs the range of probable outcomes um, that uh, you um, that you estimate before you. Um, it helps not um, do that thing which Rob is talking about, which is kind of or some of what he's alluding to, which is kind of overweight in your um, in your assessment of the future, the very recent past. Um, and that, I think, is, a, is an important lesson from, or one of the important lessons from what Rob's saying. I can see that. So, and, and Rob, why do you think that these base rates are so often overlooked or not, not understood, uh, ignored? Yeah, I think what one theory, in, in if you like, is, is because more specific or like often newer information feels more representative uh, than, than the sort of general base rates. So we often, and, and it's been well, um, sort of well documented, that we often make 
judgments based on how representative something appears to be or feels to be of another thing. So this type of mental shortcut that we often take without even being aware of it, you know, it has a name, it's called representativeness. Um, and it's been it's been shown to lead to, to things such as this, where you sort of maybe underweight the sort of base probability of something happening in favour of of more kind of recent specific information. But there's another really good example that that I think people will probably be able to relate to a little bit, where it, it again puts us into a, a place where we're, we're not making the best decisions, which is people were were given a description of somebody, um, which was Linda is a 31 year old single, outspoken and very bright. She majored in uh, philosophy or studied philosophy if you're in uh, this country. Uh, as a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice um, and also participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. And then you're asked, which is more probable? One, Linda is a bank teller or two, Linda is a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement. Now, what they find is that 85% of people go for the for the second description of Linda. I'm so she's... glad you didn't ask <laughs> Will and I to answer that. I thought I'd just jump straight to the, to the conclusion. Uh, but, but yeah, so most of people, 85% of people choose choose option two, um, that she's a bank teller and she's um, active in the feminist movement, which which first of all, just to clarify, is, is obviously not more probable. It's more probable that she is just a bank teller, because being a bank teller and being active in the feminist movement is a subset of being a bank teller. So it's more probable that she's a bank teller. However, you know, we we take the, the description of that we're given and, and we just assimilate what's that really representative of. And therefore, the description of two obviously jumps out at us and we're more likely to, to kind of go for that, even though that's that's not the right answer. That, that's so interesting. And it sort of reminds me of the discussion we were having um, based on a piece you'd read about nostalgia being, you know, such a such a potential national security threat. Yeah, I mean, I think that was, uh, this was something, it was a little bit, it's the same sort of family. I'm going to see Rob may correct me here, but I think that was focused on something called um, retrospection bias. Basically, humans have a tendency to look backward with misty eyes to see the past as much more benign, simple and innocent than it really was. Is that right, Rob? I think that's the same sort of thing. But, but yeah. so no matter, I mean, I, no matter how much better the present gets, if you think about it, the past gets better on reflection. So we are, and this is the point that I thought the author made very well, was we're, 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 we are accordingly always worth worse off than we used to be so golden ages do happen but we're never actually in them they're always back there somewhere um, and it's this um it's intuitive if you think about it because with the benefit of hindsight the past seems relatively predictable and sensible it happened and we know what happened um well the present by contrast because we don't know what's going on everywhere and all the time is always um chaotic and uncertain yeah, I think it's really, nostalgia one is really interesting one. It's quite a specific example of where we kind of look back with fond memories. But I read a really interesting study that showed that if people are primed for nostalgia, they're shown adverts of, of nostalgic kind of images and things, that they're more willing to spend and pay for pay more for products. And it's funny, you think about things like, you know, hashtag sort of throwbacks and, and throwback <laughs> Thursdays, and all these things that occur. And, and it makes sense in a way. I think you will touch on the um, retrospection point, which is true. I think the more the broader kind of issue or concept is around, um, you know, rosy retrospection, as it tends to get called, uh, which is, you know, that whole rose-tinted glasses thing. And it's something to be really aware of, I think, where we, 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 it's so well reported that we have this bias towards remembering events not that accurately at all. Uh, and we definitely remember them more favorably than we rated them at the time. And there's some really interesting examples of, you know, cyclists, uh, groups of uh, lycra-clad, uh, men and women uh, who, you know, when they're asked how, 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 how much, how enjoyable do you think this 
this long, arduous uh, cycle journey is going to be that they say, oh, yeah, we're really excited. And then when they're asked right at the end or during it, they say, this is awful. And then when they're asked again several months later, they look back and go, oh, it was one of the best trips of my life. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting <laughs> how you, you get this. Yeah, effect. being sick in a hedge, being sick in a hedge was just wonderful. <laughs> speak, speak for yourself. I was going to say, um, speak for myself. <laughs> but, but, but that point about the nostalgia and, um, you know, of course, I can't help but mentally jump to the uh, the, the catchphrase of "Make America Great Again." Um, so, so you know, thinking about U.S. elections, um, what what can we learn from this framework? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a number of things, Nikki. I mean, uh, there's a lot of excitement um, uh, about Kamala Harris for understandable reasons uh, among certain certain, certain corners. Um, but I think looking, I mean, just in terms of sort of analyzing what's happened this week and how it, what effect it has on, for instance, you know, Joe Biden's uh, chances of being selected. Uh, looking at history of VP picks, most experts will argue that the effect on a candidate's likelihood of actually making it into the Oval Office, um, the, the, the is small um, based on sort of, you know, a, a different VP uh, vice president pick. Um, now, some point out that if you are, um, if you have an older presidential candidate, um, the VP pick tends to take on a bit more importance in the electorate's mind. That, that's sort of intuitive. People talk about the John McCain um, choice of Sarah Palin um, as his running mate. Um, and that was seen as, you know, after the event as damaging potentially to his campaign when her lack of governing experience became clear. Um, and, and Joe Biden, if he makes it into the Oval Office and becomes President Biden, he would be the oldest president um, uh, uh, ever. So, you know, maybe, you know, maybe this time is different. Uh, and I would just say just the, the other point on um, on the elections, it was interesting. I was um, so that there, there's a we've talked about them before 538. Um, it, it's a website that focuses on um, political analysis, among many things. Uh, and so they have a model designed to predict the outcome um, of the US elections, uh, not predict with great certainty, they obviously have it does it more subtly than that. But their model was one of the better ones in the last elections. They gave President Trump, I think, on election day, he had a 29% chance of winning, uh, like I say, on election day versus the near zero probability suggested by many pundits and other uh, other models. So they have literally just published, I think today or yesterday, um, they've literally just published the results of their model for November elections, for this election, for the first time. Now, there are a huge number of inputs into this model. It's massively complex. It's, you know, there's a range of um, uh, indicators looking at um, kind of economic well-being, market context, polling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the output of this model is actually giving Biden, uh, Joe Biden, a 71% chance of a vic uh, victory. Now, that is exactly the same chance um, as the same model uh, gave to Hillary Clinton on election day in 2016. Now, interestingly, <laughs> it just shows you, I mean, A, that illustrates, you know, just you know how long it is to go, you know, to, 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 to the election day. So there are no certainties this far out. And I think that is exactly, you know, so the next point, which they made very well, was that if you assume in that model that election day was tomorrow, then Joe Biden's chances of winning, uh, you know, probability of winning jumps to 91 to 92%. So that 20 odd percent is the model's attempt um, to kind of uh, price the unpredictability of um, the next few months ahead and all the things that could you know change in polling and probabilities and so on um, a slightly long-winded point but it shows I mean there's interesting stuff going on with uh, uh, with uh, you know the elections and it will continue to be interesting I suspect if I can just well, a, I guess... a week has always been a long sorry I just kind of wanted to chime in on the back of something that will said about you know this time being 
being different or m maybe this time is different and i think just something to bear in mind with the i guess with the elections but with with everything else is that you know there will always be times when it is indeed different um and in fact it always is different but it's a case of i think sometimes we we read that we hear it we say it and it's very much like this time's going to be monumentally different whereas the reality is it's going to be slightly different and ha how different is it going to be and how much weight should we assign to that which is i guess really important to think about rather than just assuming that we're going to have a very different outcome yeah agreed yeah. agreed agreed and agree and nikki agree a week is a long time in politics that's it. <laughs> Well, and uh, yeah, a week is a long time. And, and I think we're all feeling weeks as being um, longer than usual <laughs> in 2020. So. I would agree. <laughs> so, so just coming back to some of the other other news that we've been seeing, um, we, we, had, we had the second quarter GDP figures for the UK this week, Will. Um, pretty awful. Um, what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, they were, I mean, just jaw dropping and you're seeing it all over the papers. And I was in an Uber where the, the driver was uh, yesterday, but the driver was sort of worrying about it and it created a bit of panic, the headlines. Um, and I think, you know, to be honest, um, you know, history is capable of being misused a bit. And this may be an example. Yes, you know, the second quarter um, saw shocking, you know, record breaking declines in measured output um, for the UK and many other economies around the world. But this recession, as we pointed out before, it's really not comparable with others in many senses. Uh, remember, it was kind of imposed on the economy um, for health reasons. It, it wasn't a function of kind of um, accruing bad behavior and the need to correct that bad behavior. Um, and, and in the third quarter, in which we're in the middle of, is already seeing, um, you know, a likely historically, you know, rapid um, recovery. But look, you know, there's, this, there's still a gigantic challenge ahead. You know, and we know that. Uh, and we've spoken about that, you know, last week among many other weeks as well. But I do think that the way that it was reported was pretty unhelpful in many senses. Um, there was just a lack of appropriate context um, and uh, in much of the coverage. And I think that's, you know, part of that point that sort of Rob is making is you've got to find the right baseline. Uh, from which to compare stuff against, incoming information against. Yeah. Okay. And 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 I guess for our listeners um, who are um, more often than not um, investors, Rob, what 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 can you say to soothe our our fevered brows at the moment? Um, not not least that I think that there's uh, certainly where I'm calling in from. There's about to be a downpour. So <laughs> maybe that will help. Yes, Nikki. So I think when it comes to thinking about whether you should be invested uh, or investing for the first time, the information you should be sort of thinking about to form that that base rate, as I talked about earlier, the, the sort of prior likelihood of of, um, of, of something happening, uh, should really be something like the likelihood that a diversified portfolio has provided you know positive returns, so not not lost money essentially over the period you're investing for. And when we look at, you know, the higher risk asset classes, such as equities in developed markets or developed economies, um, we, we see that, you know, over the, the history we have of, of, of looking at um, as those markets, that that likelihood is very high. And it's something, something like over 95% if you look over a 10-year period. So if you're investing for that length of time, you know, the likelihood of seeing a positive return is very high. And, you know, that's for, for a riskier asset class. And we can assume that for a, for a more well-diversified portfolio, it would be possibly even higher than that. Um, and so as with coronavirus tests, when base rates, um, and, and, you know, we're talking about the, the, the base probability, um, are very high, the accuracy of the evidence in inverted commas you need, you know, to bet against them also has to be very high. 
yeah, over a, over a reasonable time period, as you say. And Will, what about what about you? Any other thoughts on what we're seeing in markets at the moment? Yeah, and I'd also urge people not to confuse that uh, for people not to confuse the base rates that Rob's talking about with the base rates that you're going to get uh, from uh, uh, that the Bank of England is going to say. Yes, uh, I don't think that, <laughs> yeah, there's uh, there's certainly no chance. Well, I would say no chance. That's unlikely to, to be high. Uh, unlikely to be high. Yeah. Like, Thank you, Nikki, for stopping me jumping to too strong a statement. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think um, we've spoken about this before, but you can see it all around in markets at the moment. You know, winners, recent winners are recorded as special status in investors' psyches. Um, you know, gold is a good example. It's a famously, you know, it's famously prone to such momentum. The better it does, the more disciples it gains. Uh, and you see, as gold prices go up, you see more complicated arguments sort of explaining why it's gone up and so on. This is part of the, uh, you know, part of the narrative power in markets. Um, and you look at some of the longer term trends to do with, you know, styles, um, you know, so certain sectors, certain types of company um, in the equity market have been um, out of favor for a decade relative to some of the more kind of glitzier, currently glitzier parts. Now, the longer that goes on, the more investors you see kind of folding uh, and just migrating to the winners. Uh, so the mega, ta- mega cap tech stocks and other such, you know, current titans, um, are, are, you know, are, are the beneficiaries at the moment. However, look a bit further back. Uh, and history is littered with examples of relatively sudden and unpredictable changes to how the world economy is organized, regulated and viewed by investors. Uh, so winners uh, become losers and vice versa. Um, and I think the point here is be very, very, very careful about extrapolating the last few months, even years into the future. Um, that is why we routinely argue and practice um, that you need to cast your investment net a bit wider um, than just the recent batch of winners. Very well put. Um, so listen, Rob, Will, thank you very much for, for joining joining me and, and providing so many great insights. Um, thank you very much for listening to us. Um, do keep subscribing, do keep sharing on social media, etc. Um, to encourage more of your, your friends and colleagues and enemies, if you so desire, to, um, to subscribe to. Um, but thank you very much and we'll be back next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.